Hello, listeners. From home or on the road, catch a favorite story. You are listening to Catch the Story, the podcast where in each episode we bring you great stories told by dear storytellers. I'm your host, Lucia Matuonto, and it's time to catch the story. Meet our first storyteller, Pat Beckley. Pat is a talented British author, now calling New Zealand home. The Odd House by Pat Beckley. It looked so odd sitting amongst all the other houses in the street. Incongruous, totally out of place. Surely it belonged in an old French village, not here in the middle of suburbia at the other end of the world. All the other houses in the quiet street were either stylish white villas, modernised to within an inch of their lives, or ultra-modern homes made from shiny concrete, metal and exposed timber. The old grey stone house sat on a big plot, a plot that could easily have accommodated six or eight modern townhouses. From where she sat, she could see only the back wall of the old house. It looked ancient and rather unloved. The old stone walls had big cracks. The windows looked as though they hadn't been cleaned for years, and the garden, obviously once rather lovely, was now completely overgrown. The only things flourishing in it were an ancient olive tree and another tree laden with huge ripe lemons. There was the twiggy skeleton of something that had been growing up the high walls, jasmine or wisteria perhaps. The whole place looked sad and unloved. A big open doorway stood to one side where old wooden handled tools were propped against the wall. They were covered in cobwebs and looked as though no one had used them for a very long time. You couldn't see the old house from the street. It was nestled behind several other houses. Perhaps a long time ago it had been the only home in the street, but she guessed the land surrounding it must have been sold to developers over the years. She was intrigued. It looked derelict, but there was the occasional sign of life, a tool moved, a saucer of bread left out for the birds, but never anything more, never a sight or sound of any human habitation. She was on a writing retreat, staying in one of the stylish white villas, and her room overlooked the back of the old house. Every day, when she had writer's block, she peered into the old garden, hoping for some sign of life. Although it looked derelict and unloved, there was something that drew her to it. She became desperate to know more about its history. The lady at the corner shops glared at her. Why are you so curious? Are you a journalist or something? If you're a real estate agent, you're wasting your time. The house isn't for sale. She explained that she was actually a writer here in the city to research the suffragettes, those wonderful women who had fought so tirelessly to make New Zealand the first country in the world to allow women the vote. The shop owner, whose name was Shirley, relaxed and they chatted for a while. The next afternoon, the young writer walked up the narrow garden path, hemmed in on both sides by large lavender bushes. The perfume from them was intoxicating. Her feet made a loud crunching sound as she walked. In her bag was a small box containing four coffee eclairs that Shirley from the shop had sold her. The front of the old house was much grander than the back. It looked rather like a small chateau. 
There was an enclosed front porch where old cane chairs were dotted amongst huge terracotta pots of red geraniums and a grey cat lay asleep in the sunshine. The front door was slightly ajar and she could hear piano music. She knocked gently, not sure if she should really be intruding. After a while, she heard footsteps. Bonjour, may I help you? Her voice was surprisingly strong for someone so tiny. She was barely five feet tall and probably well into her nineties. Elegant and beautifully dressed, although her outfit had probably been more fashionable in the 1960s. Her grey hair was cut in a stylish bob and her fingernails were painted bright red to match her lipstick. The young writer apologised for her intrusion, explaining her curiosity about the house. She handed the old lady the box of cakes. She squealed in delight, rather like a little girl. Oh, my favourites! I bet Shirley at the shop told you to buy me these. They laughed and the ice was broken. Over Earl Grey tea served in pretty bone china cups, she told the young woman her story. I was only 21 when I met him, my handsome Jack. He was a soldier come to France to fight the Germans. It was 1945 and the war was over at last. We loved all the Kiwi soldiers. They were so kind to us. We were so sad after being invaded for so long. Everything was so grey, so boring. They were like a ray of sunshine, all those handsome young men. He courted me, of course, and was such a gentleman. Even my parents, who were very protective, adored him. But then he said he wanted to take me back to New Zealand with him as a war bride. I didn't really want to go. I didn't see how I could fit in there, a little French girl in a foreign land. But he persuaded me and promised he would build me a house, just like the ones at home in my village. Tall, made of grey stone, with shutters, tiled floors, and a big garden where I could grow flowers, olives and lemons. He was as good as his word. I was very homesick at first, but once he started building this house, I began to feel better. His family thought he was crazy, building an old stone house in the middle of the city, but he didn't care. He loved me and wanted to make me happy. Sadly, we never managed to make any babies. His old war wounds saw to that, but we were so happy. This house was always filled with music, life and laughter. And then he died, 20 years ago now. I was utterly heartbroken. Once I began to feel better, I realised I was still quite fit and healthy, only in my seventies, so I could manage to look after everything. But gradually I had to sell off bits of my lovely garden to pay the bills. Now I just have my lavender path and the messy bit at the back that you saw from your window. Sadly, I can't even manage to look after that properly anymore. I just pick the odd lemon and put bread out for the birds. But my neighbours are wonderful and Shirley from the shop delivers my groceries every week. Sometimes I sit on my French front porch, close my eyes, and imagine I am back in my little French village, meeting my Jack for the first time. The end. In addition to being an author of many captivating books, Pat also takes on the role of co-host of the RV Book Fair. Our second story, The Day the Garden Warden Died, is penned and narrated by the author Wayne McFarland. I've noticed that bragging about ancestors 
tends to be loudest about those most removed from present day. The further away in time relatives are, the more we tend to sanitize what they did, and the more we forget that for most of them, life really sucked. Think chamber pot. I did know my grandfather personally, though. As George Bernard Shaw said one time, if you cannot get rid of the family skeleton, you may as well make it dance. The day the game warden died. My grandfather shot Blackie under the big old tree in the center of the barnyard. My cousin Janet was lounging on a low branch, Alice in Wonderland style, with me down below. I don't remember what kid stuff my cousin and I were discussing, but I do remember my granddad ordering Blackie, a mostly Labrador lying by my side, to go get the cows. He gave the get the cows order twice, and Blackie just cocked his head in that tongue-lolling, brown-eyed way that Labradors have, and looked at him, clearly perplexed. Granddad sighed, walked to the house, retrieved his worn, much-used shotgun, and killed Blackie right then and there. The crack of the gun twice punctuating my cousin's hysterical screaming. Then, without ceremony, he fired up his rickety tractor, pulled Blackie up to the manure pile, and dumped him up on top. Until she died many years later, Janet and I, when together, would occasionally bring up that day but never for too long, because she would start to cry and my eyeballs would start to sweat, so we always changed the subject. My grandfather always wanted to be a veterinarian, but after sixth grade, more schooling was utterly impossible. He did have that touch, that magic that would calm an animal no matter how hurt or sick, bringing them rest and healing. No one bothered with farm dogs or barn cats back then. They lived, they died. If they weren't useful, they were gotten rid of. There really were no pets. So neighbors would deliver to my grandfather only their wounded and ill cash livestock for a last chance. And often it worked, thanks to my grandfather's caring and gentle hands. But none of that really mattered. My grandparents were born just in time to be adults in the Depression of the 1930s, that glacier of poverty and despair that either ground people to dust or turned them into rocks, hard and cold as ice. My granddad had a lot of dogs over the years, and the ones that survived were great at bringing in the cows. How they came to know how to do this is an enduring mystery, as he never gave them a lick of training. He would just shout at them to do whatever he wanted them to do, expecting the dog in question to know what he was talking about and to follow orders. To my grandmother's ongoing disgust and irritation, Granddad was the same with chickens. At night, he would shout at them to go into the coop and then kill the ones that didn't follow orders. Time after time in the early evening, he would offhandedly dump a half dozen or so dead chickens into the kitchen sink which had no running water, and expect grandmother to gut, pluck, and prepare the chicken for cooking before morning. And then he'd go to bed. When I start to judge them, I try to remind myself that my grandparents grew up in a different time, a time so different it might as well have been lived on another planet. Quote, having to get married, close quote, 
They had and raised six kids, two of them delivered by my grandfather on the kitchen table. That shiny old shotgun that killed Blackie saw service three other times that I know of. Once was when my grandmother shot at a couple dozen of Granddad's relatives in order to drive them off their farm during the Depression of the 1930s. She had stood by day after day as his relatives camped out in the apple orchard and ran up grocery bills that my grandparents would have to pay. But then she found out that one of them, who was hot-bunking with her kids, had syphilis. She yanked that old gun out of the closet and marched out to the orchard. She banged away at them, fortunately clipping only the apple trees. By the time Granddad got home that evening, all the relatives were gone. They never came back. Another time, gun in hand, my grandfather faced down three New Deal agents who had come to his farm to kill his pigs under a government program designed to drive up livestock prices. But Granddad had six kids, and his hogs weren't low-priced, unsellable pigs. They were food. So he threatened to kill those federal agents with that old shotgun. The agents left. The pigs survived to offer up many a ham sandwich. And why Granddad didn't go to jail for what he did that day is still a family mystery. The third other time was one when I personally saw him use that gun probably saving my life as a kid. Another cousin of mine, I have a lot of them, and I, wandered down from the back porch into the barnyard. At this point, a full-grown bull, my grandfather's pride and joy, came bursting out of the barn and directly toward us. I remember it had stopped to paw the ground directly in front of my cousin and I, a really bad sign. My grandfather ran from the house towards us, shotgun in hand. My grandfather loved that bull. He needed that bull. It was the only bull he had, and the calves he so desperately required to make ends meet were the progeny of that one animal in my grandparents' scraggly herd of heifers. Granddad started shooting that bull before he skidded to a halt beside us. And he shot it, and he shot it, and he shot it, until that huge animal turned away bellowing. It ran off, taking out part of the fence. I heard later that my grandfather was in such a rush, he might have been shooting the bull with birdshot, not having had time to load buckshot. I don't know if the bull survived, as I never saw it again. Either it died, or my grandfather subsequently penned it up far away from the house. In the 1930s, it got really bad for my grandparents and their kids. The Dust Bowl was raging, even hitting parts of South Dakota where they lived. Drought. The crops failed. My grandparents moved to a farm bordering a lake, and my grandfather became famous as a guy who could catch fish out of that lake when no one else could even get a nibble. Those fish, one of my uncles later told me, saved the family. My uncle then added he could not stand the taste or smell of fish ever after, as that was pretty much all they ate for a period of some years. There were limits on the number of fish you could catch and take home even then, so naturally my grandfather poached. One of my granddad's best friends from childhood became the game warden for the entire county in which my grandparents lived. Times were tough 
and the game warden's pay, I have no doubt, took care of and saved the warden's family. Certainly, he could not afford to lose that job, friend or no. They became bitter enemies, the game warden and my grandfather. Their anger raged for years, so hostile and fierce that at times folks were afraid it would lead to killing violence. The game warden and everyone else knew that my grandfather was poaching, and probably not just fish. Nailing my grandfather became an ongoing, I'm doing my job goal and constant, have you arrested him yet? irritant for the warden. Under this incessant goading, the game warden apparently one day decided that catching someone poaching fish was probably the easiest way to nail a miscreant, particularly in the winter when everyone used fish houses out on the ice. The game warden took to showing up at my grandfather's fish house day and night, appearing out of the snow like some vengeful wraith, banging on the door and actually shouting, Open in the name of the law! He also would come by the farm, ongoing warrant in hand, looking for an excess of fish heads and entrails. But what with the always hungry sty of pigs on the premises, he never had any luck. Grandmother would offer him coffee. I don't know if it ever became a game, but I do know my grandfather worked out an entire process and enlisted his kids whenever he dragged them along to help out with the fishing. They would always throw a few fish outside of the fish house to freeze, making sure they were visible. They made sure as well that all of the frozen fish met the size limit and that the number thrown outside was always fewer than the catching limit. Then it couldn't be argued that Grandad and the occupants of the fish house could not go on trying to snag yet more fish in order to hit the legal limit. It's a good thing my grandfather built a false wall into the fish house with just enough room between it and the real wall to slither in a lot of catch, as my grandfather, and now and again his kids, caught a lot of fish day and night. The game warden never figured it out, or rather, having a family of his own to support, and knowing the heart-stopping terror of it all, he never said anything in those terrible times and just pretended it was all an ongoing perplexity. If he did know about it, and did nothing, then of course he would be risking his own livelihood and his own family. And who would do that? Then one day, out of the blue, totally unexpectedly, the game warden died. The church was packed, I'm told, when my grandfather walked in. It got extremely quiet as he walked up to the coffin. He was wearing not only a suit but a tie, and no one ever had seen him in anything but patched raggedy overalls. In fact, I don't believe he ever wore a suit again until the day of my grandmother's funeral. He stopped at the side of the coffin and leaned down over the body of his enemy. He whispered something that no one could make out. Then he turned around, and at the front of the church, facing the congregation, broke down and wept uncontrollably. Wayne left a Midwestern town years ago, journeying from the Dakotas to California, Pamplona to Paris. He's a notable achievement, simply surviving. 
that's all for today. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have a story that you want us to catch, submit it on our website at www.relatable-media.com. Thank you for listening, and whether you are at home or on the road, we hope you catch this story.